Hi, this is Jeremy from the Podcast We Listen To podcast. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about a thing that we're putting together called PodCon 2018. This is a convention of podcast listeners, for podcast listeners, and by podcast listeners. And yeah, hosts are listeners too. I listen all day long. This is going to be the fall of 2018 in New Orleans, and it's going to be a blast. It's being put together by myself, members of the podcast we listen to Facebook group, and hosts of several of your favorite shows, including Dina from Twisted Philly and Allie from Insight. Fall of 2018 gives us time to put it together right. We're really looking forward to it. There is so much excitement. The podcast we listen to Facebook group is blowing up over it. For more information, you can join the podcast we listen to Facebook group, or you can follow at PodCon2018 on Twitter. And as soon as we finalize more details, we will put those out there for you. In the meantime, just keep listening to your favorite shows and you'll probably hear something about it. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me as always is my co-host Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. I want to sing happy birthday though. You can sing happy birthday if you really want to. No, I'll sing it off key. <laughs> As we've been warned from other people, everyone sings it off key. This is our first birthday episode, and we're really excited. We put out a poll several weeks ago, so we had enough time to work on this. We put out six episode suggestions that we have gotten, and this one was a clear lead by like 60% of the vote. The reason this episode ended up on the list is because we had at least three people, if not more, suggest it. We tend to only keep track of the first three. So I want to thank Amanda Lynn, Olivia, Jenny, and everyone who voted for this episode for bringing us this episode suggestion. This episode is about two deaths that occurred at the same place, just days apart. The accidental death of six-year-old Max Shacknai and the suicide of his father's living girlfriend, Rebecca Zahau, in July of 2011. Or possibly the accidental death of one and the murder of the other, or possibly the murders of both. While the police have closed the case on these two deaths at Spreckles Mansion, the families, some forensic experts, and many members of the public feel the rulings of an accident and a suicide need to be re-examined. Both of these incidents took place at the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado, California. The Spreckles Mansion was built for John Spreckles, an heir to the Spreckles Sugar Fortune, who later built his own company for transportation and real estate. He worked in San Diego, and at one point he owned all of Coronado and built a huge beachfront estate in the early 1900s. John's brother is the one who had the other Spreckles Mansion built, and that one is home of romance author Danielle Steele, and that's in San Francisco. It's the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado that we'll be discussing. At the time of the incident, it was owned by a millionaire pharmaceutical CEO, Jonah Shacknai. The home was just used in the summer, from Memorial Day to Labor Day. In the off-season, caretakers lived on the grounds, but over the summer... The main house was occupied by Jonah, his girlfriend of two years, Rebecca Zahau, and his three children who lived there part-time as they were children from his previous two marriages and he shared custody. There was also a guest house on the property that was periodically used by visitors and there was a garage with living quarters above it where the caretakers generally lived. During the incidents we're talking about today, they were not there. So let's start with the two people who lived at Spreckles full-time that summer, Rebecca Zahau and Jonah Shacknai. And let's talk about their relationship as well, because that is an important part of this story as well, moving forward. Rebecca was born on March 15, 1979 in Falam, in what was then Burma. Today it's called Myanmar, but I digress. Rebecca was born into a family that was both an ethnic and religious minority, and what comes with that is prosecution because of it. Her father had been jailed for advocating for religious freedom. When she was still young, her family relocated to Germany after her father was granted asylum there. While she was Burmese and had spent her early childhood there, 
She grew up largely in Germany. When she was in college in 2001, she went to a summer outreach program through her church to Austria, where she met an American man named Neil Nalipa. He left shortly after they met, but he had almost immediately fallen for her. Their relationship continued largely via email until he proposed marriage that October. In April of the following year, Rebecca went to the United States and almost immediately married Neil. Her visa for entry into the United States expired in the May, so that would explain the rush wedding. The rest of her family, aside for a grown sister who stayed in Germany, they all moved to the United States to be with Rebecca, and they settled in St. Joseph, Missouri, which is about an hour north of where you are, Charlie, in Kansas City. Rebecca was able to continue school in spite of moving around a lot, and Neil did try to find his own career path. She became a trained surgical assistant and eventually worked for an ophthalmologist. Now her relationship with Neil was on again and off again. While they were together, she largely supported them financially. In the end, though, they just didn't seem compatible. Rebecca wanted to settle down and have that financial security, and Neil wasn't finding that easy. The divorce was eventually finalised in early 2011, though they hadn't been together as a married couple in some time. They were still in contact, enough for her then-new boyfriend Jonah. He mentioned to police later on that they were in regular contact, though nothing threatening. Jonah Shachnai was 22 years older than Rebecca, and he had grown up in New York and had been married twice previously. Both marriages have been described as chaotic. With his first wife, he had two children, who would have been in the young teen age at the time of this incident. There was a prolonged custody battle between Jonah and his ex. His second marriage was to Dina Shachnai, the mother of his young son, Max. Max was six years old at the time. His mother and father did not have a good relationship. There were some accusations of domestic violence towards the end of their marriage. Dina acknowledges this, but also said it wasn't a good indication of the whole of their marriage. This was really the breaking point of their marriage, their low spot. Jonah and Rebecca met sometime in 2009. Jonah's second marriage was over. And Rebecca was estranged from her ex-husband, though she was not technically divorced. According to a close friend of Jonah's, they had a really special relationship. They were very, very close. They were compatible, which was a change for both of them. Jonah's previous marriages had been contentious. Rebecca and her ex-husband wanted different things out of life. So finding each other and sharing common interests was big for them. They were both active. They were both into nutrition and fitness. And they both had a background in the medical field, so they understood each other's work. Eventually, though, Rebecca quit her job. Jonah had more than enough to support them both, and it allowed her to help care for his children when it was his parenting time. Rebecca had a journal on her phone that showed another side of the relationship. She wrote about wondering if her relationship with Jonah was punishment for how she treated her ex-husband, Basically, she was in a relationship where this time she loved her partner more than she thought he loved her, whereas in her marriage, it was the opposite. She wrote about how Jonah's older two children didn't like her and that Jonah expected her to stay out of the way of his older children, but then also to play nice and show up to family dinners, even if she was uncomfortable. I'm not in a blended family. My husband and I have several children with an wide age gap, but they are all ours. But this sounds to me like Jonah was trying to juggle the feelings of his children, who were being shuffled between houses, and his girlfriend, whom he loved far more than his children did. She also wrote wondering if she was actually okay with never having children of her own, or if she was compromising this to be with Jonah. So if you remember, he was in his 50s and had three children already, but Rebecca was still in her 30s and hadn't had children yet. And that's a big sacrifice to make when you see your partner with children that are biological children of his and knowing you'll never have that. It's absolutely a lot to ask of her and also to ask 
her to coordinate this blended family that wasn't getting along as well. So you could see in these entries that there was a that Rebecca was feeling a lot of stress from the relationship, even though she loved Jonah very much. She also wrote about trying to be the best girlfriend and caretaker to the kids that she could be, so it wasn't like this journal was all about sadness and depression. This seems like her outlet. These weren't thought-out letters that she sent people. Some of these journal entries were written as though they were letters to people, but these were like raw feelings. You know those immediate feelings when you're initially hurt? They're not always pretty. They're not always a great reflection of where you are overall or where you are in a week after you've thought about it more. But it is clear that there were issues in their relationship and Rebecca was unsure where to go with it. Let's start with the first incident, Max's accident. Max was six years old. He was happy, outgoing, fun-loving and athletic. He showed exceptional skill at soccer for his age, so much so that he often played upper grade on teams. So he was competing against kids that were older than him, and he still excelled. While he was active and just a normal six-year-old boy, his family did say that he wasn't a daredevil. The day before the accident, Rebecca's younger sister, Zena, arrived from Missouri for a two-week visit. It's been reported that she is 13 or 14, depending on the source. There is some debate as to who was at the house at the time. An attorney later hired by Rebecca's family claimed that Jonah's two older children were at home at the time of the accident, but then other places reported that they had left earlier that morning to go back to their mum as it was the end of their visit. I couldn't find any articles that mentioned the kids being at home at the time, so we'll just run with that they had gone back to their mum's house. As for Jonah, he had jogged or walked to the gym down the street from the home. At around 10am, Zena is in the bathroom taking a shower, and Rebecca is, well, she is somewhere else in the house. I've seen that she was in another bathroom, either washing her hair or also taking a shower. But then I've also seen it said that no one's sure where she was. Either way, there was a crashing sound and Rebecca runs to the entryway where she finds Max lying there. Max had fallen over the second story landing. The crash was the chandelier coming with him. Perhaps he grabbed it on the way down or he had fallen with force that propelled him enough forward that he pulled it down with him by accident. His scooter was also in the entryway. One report I read said that it was lying partially across his shin. Zena called 911 around 10 past 10, though she was slightly delayed in getting the information out because It's understandably she'd be upset and she didn't know exactly the details of the address of where she was. And this is why I lean towards Jonah's other kids not being there because if they were, I would imagine one of them would have known the address and they would have either called 911 themselves or prompted Zena while she was on the phone to 911. Rebecca began CPR on Max while Zena was calling 911. Paramedics arrived and resuscitated him. Rebecca called Jonah at the gym and all he got from the phone call was something happened to Max. He ran home and arrived in time to see the ambulance load Max up. Max was taken to hospital and admitted and he was in bad shape. He was kept in a medically induced coma due to his spinal injuries. Moving would have made healing impossible. However, four days after his accident, Max tragically died from his injuries at the young age of six. No one saw this accident. There are a few theories on how it happened, so we'll just go into them now. This story is one that is frankly too big and with too many pieces to hold anything back for a theory section at the end. So we are just going to cover it all as we go. The first theory is that Max was riding his Razor scooter upstairs and hit the banister, propelling him forward. Razor scooters are metal, non-motorized scooters that can go quite fast, and there was paint transfer from the upstairs banister on the scooter near the wheelbase. However, the upstairs was a plush carpet. The wheels on these scooters are small, and the part that you stand on is pretty low to the ground. 
It's unlikely, in my expert opinion, as a mother with a garage full of these scooters, that he would have gotten too great of a speed just going down a hallway on a plush carpet. I agree with you with that. The carpeting, riding just doesn't make sense. I do believe the scooter was involved somehow, and I think that if the scooter had not been in the house upstairs and allowed to be used inside, maybe the accident wouldn't happened, but I don't think he was riding it on the carpet. And along the lines of what you're saying, there were gouges on the banister that could possibly have been where Max's scooter got the paint transfer, only they were up higher on the banister. You'd expect paint transfer on the base of the scooter to also be from the base of the banister, since this wasn't a flying scooter. So there is a theory that perhaps he was trying to do a trick with his scooter up on the banister or near the banister and that he fell doing this. Well, you know from having boys, Charlie, but six-year-olds, while they are very smart and they're capable of doing many great things... They probably don't possess the reasoning skills necessary to recognise how dangerous a situation could be. If there were rules in the house like don't play on the stairs, don't play on the banister, perhaps those times while he wasn't under surveillance by Rebecca or Jonah, maybe he was being a bit of a daredevil when people weren't there to stop him. Of my four children who are ages 10 and up, only one of them has made it to the age of 10 without a broken bone and or stitches. And I wouldn't consider any of my children particularly daredevils either, but they do things that make them fall or trip or whatever, and things happen. The third theory is that he tripped over something else not involving his scooter in the hallway upstairs, possibly the dog. Rebecca claimed that Max spoke one word after he fell, before he went unconscious, and that that word was Ocean. And Ocean was the name of their dog, a Weimariner, that Rebecca had since her first marriage. For those who don't know, Weimariners are large dogs. They're similar in size to a Doberman Pinscher. Experts seem to agree that there is no way Max said anything after he fell, The damage to his system was just too great. So is it possible that what Rebecca heard was expelling air and her brain filled in the word ocean, which has a lot of unvoiced sounds to it? But her story about Max saying ocean is also questionable in some minds. Did Max say that or was Rebecca deflecting blame? An expert hired by Dina Shacknai has noted that some of the injuries on Max, she believes, show that he was possibly beaten before his fall. She also points to bruising on Max's back as a sign that he was lifted and pushed over the banister. But also maybe he was trying to get away from whatever beating was happening and he went over the banister that way. I will say that I have never seen any other allegations of abuse by Rebecca towards any of Jonah's children. And Dina, at a very recent press conference, said that in hindsight, with a few years of reflection, she doesn't believe that Rebecca hurt Max, and she doesn't believe Rebecca would have hurt Max. An early theory that was based on some information from a trauma doctor, so you'll still see it floating around, was that Max's heart and brain damage indicated strangulation before his fall. However, I'm under the impression that further evaluation showed that it was the injuries to his spine that could explain those exact conditions. Something I read on the WebSuice thread that resonated with me, but according to an interview I read with Dina, we know that Max was somewhat a careful child and he didn't take risks. But she also reported that there were soccer balls always scattered around the house, which Again, makes sense. Max loves soccer and he was allowed to take normally outdoor equipment for inside play. I can't help but think, is it possible that maybe he was trying to get a soccer ball that was stuck in a chandelier that he had possibly kicked up there? What if he tried to use the scooter to try and get it, but then he couldn't reach it and he climbed up on the banister and slipped? Or is it possible that Ocean, being an excited dog, had knocked him off balance up there And then when he falls, maybe the scooter hit the chandelier or Max grabbed it when he was falling. 
I mean, that's another possible scenario from what we know. There's just so many unknowns with the chandelier as well. We really don't know how the chandelier broke or if any of these theories could even break it down. We don't know how vulnerable was that ring in the first place. I mean, was it getting ready to break or was it already weak? We don't know the weight loading for this chandelier. There was no blood or DNA on the chandelier. We just don't know. I did see that the mansion, while it was very expensive and very nice, a lot of it had not been updated in quite a t- quite some time. So it wasn't as though he bought it and renovated the whole thing and everything was new. So like you said, the chandelier may have had something, a, a link in it already loose. Police tried to recreate a fall that would account for all the injuries Max sustained, but the expert hired by Dina says, no way. The biomechanics of the police theory does not work and neither does any other accidental fall based on Max's height, the height of the banister and the injuries to his body. And that the only way Max could have fallen was if he was lifted up somehow. We will post the police drawing of how they conclude the fall likely happened in the Facebook group. And if Charlie reminds me, I'll put it on the website as well. Now, in my past life, I was called into scenes of a lot of accidents. An accident scene, whether it be a car wreck or a train accident or a person falling or whatever, it's called a dynamic scene. We come up on it and you only see a snapshot of where everything ended up. And it's the investigator's job to look back through the evidence to figure out how it all got there. In this case, there is a lot of pieces we don't know looking at this initial snapshot of the mansion. We don't know where the scooter started. For all we know, it could have been in the entryway the whole time. We don't know where Ocean was this whole time. We know that something disturbed the chandelier at some point so that it fell as well. We don't know if the gouges on the banister happened in this particular incident or was it from Max carrying his scooter down the hall earlier that day and he banged it into a banister. Because I can't imagine a six-year-old riding or carrying a scooter in a house and not bumping into things, especially walls and banisters. Or maybe the police diagram could be imperfect or the expert's interpretation could be imperfect. There's a lot of room here for analysis, but we're not privy to the information we would need to make our own analysis, nor are we exactly qualified to do so. Another early theory was that perhaps he had an unexpected cardiac incident while he was at the top of the stairs and then he fell. But I don't believe any strong evidence came out of this. He had damage to his heart, yes, but... That was from going without oxygen for as long as he had immediately after the fall. And having a sudden cardiac arrest doesn't explain the distance forward he fell enough to take the chandelier down with him. Or to get additional bruises on his way down. Again, we'll post the picture because you really need to see how this, this isn't a straight staircase. It goes over, it goes down, it goes over, it goes down. There's there's a landing in between. So we'll definitely post the picture because you have to see it to picture this. The day after Max's fall, this would be Tuesday, July 12th, while Jonah was at the hospital with Max, Rebecca made a trip to the airport. It was decided, rather wisely in my opinion, to send Zena back home. She could come out and visit later in the summer with everything going on with Max and probably the trauma of what she saw. It was just best if she went home. She had gone to receive stitches the same day as Max's accident after she had cut herself trying to help clean up the chandelier. So all in all, it was best to send Zena home. And from what I can tell, Rebecca got to work. She didn't go to the hospital. There could be multiple reasons for this. And the one I think is probably most likely is that she and Dina did not get along. And Dina was Max's mother and needed to be at his side and be there without any contention. She did pick up various family members at the airport, including Dina's twin sister. She made arrangements to board the dog. She got her sister settled on her way back home, texted her throughout the day to make sure she got back all right and got her connecting flight. She took care of all those things that need to be done at home when 
something like this happens so that Jonah could just focus on Max and stay near the hospital instead of going back and forth to the house. According to the dog boarder, she was very upset. So it's not as though she was unfeeling and cold towards this and just focusing on getting things done. She was actually doing these things in spite of her own feelings. One of the family members she picked up at the airport was Adam Shacknai, who was Jonah's brother, and he was a tugboat captain in Tennessee. They had dinner with Jonah before they returned him to the hospital around 8 p.m., and Rebecca and Adam returned to the house. According to Adam, he never went into the main house. He just went straight to the guest house to settle in for the night. Rebecca's phone records showed a lot of activity in the 24 hours before she died, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. Most of the calls or texts were to or from Jonah. Some were to other family members and a close family friend. But it's what you would expect as she's keeping them up to date with Max's condition, keeping her family in the loop and coordinating all these trips to the airport. The two items of most note were first a text from around 10.41pm on July 12. It was from Dina's twin sister, Nina. Yes, Dina and Nina. But according to Nina, it was a request to come by the house to talk to Rebecca about Max's accident. Rebecca did not respond to this text. A witness would later say a woman matching Dina's description was seen outside the mansion that night, but it would turn out it was most likely Nina. Nina and Dina, in spite of these unfortunate matching names, they weren't identical but looked enough alike as sisters that someone could mix them up in the dark. Nina never went in the house. The second was a voicemail check just a bit before 1am. According to reports, this voicemail was left by Jonah. The voicemail was listened to and deleted, but Jonah said he left Rebecca this voicemail, telling her that they received bad news about Max. While there had been some good signs earlier in the day, they were told things were looking worse for Max. Now, obviously, we don't know if Rebecca was the one who listened to this voicemail. If it was, it does back up the idea that she committed suicide because she was distraught over Max's accident. That night on July 12th, there were some ear witnesses that came forward later. There were reports that a loud party was going on at the mansion around 1 a.m., which sounds absolutely ridiculous, figuring that Max was in the hospital the two people at the property were Adam, who had traveled most of the day to get to California to be with his brother, and Rebecca, who had spent the entire day running around and taking care of business. I mean, it's possible someone from the house was playing music loudly, maybe with a door or window open, but there certainly was no party there. Another witness heard screams around 11.30 p.m., and a second witness backed this up later on when a private investigator canvassed the neighborhood. The screams were a woman saying, ah, ah, and help. The police's stance on this is that these screams were likely from some teenagers who were hanging out down on the beach and just being loud. After this non-party and maybe screaming, the next morning, according to Adam, he left the guest house a little after 6.30 in the morning to head into the main house for coffee, breakfast, something like that. As he came out into the shared yard between the guest house and the main house, he saw Rebecca's nude body hanging from a noose. He ran inside the house to the kitchen to get a knife to cut her down, and he dragged a patio table over near where she was, and when investigators arrived, the table was observed to have a broken leg, and this is most likely from Adam standing on it, to cut her down. When you see the crime scene pictures that are available, you will see the table near where she was hanging, but that's not from her using it. That's from Adam. And then, of course, Adam called 911. When EMTs arrived, they tried to resuscitate, but it was evident that rigor had started to set into her jaw, so it was useless. This means she was most likely dead for at least two hours at this point, but possibly up to six hours. It would later be discovered that lividity, meaning that the pool of blood that occurs after the heart stops pumping, became fixed in her back, 
which is consistent to where she was laying on the grass. Lividity becomes fixed around six hours and won't change when you change positions. So if she was hanging for less than six hours when Adam cut her down, we know that she was laying on the grass long enough for lividity to set in because she was cut down by Adam before 7am and her body was left there until 8pm. At least one neighbour with a view to the backyard took a photo of Rebecca's body in the yard and it appears a news helicopter got a shot as well. I don't think we even need to get into the blatant disrespect shown to Rebecca here, first by not covering her up, and second by people who thought taking and releasing those photos was somehow in the public's best interest. Anyway, this would put her time of death between 1 and 5am, with most places reporting it was most likely around 3am. If this was staged, let's just say she was murdered and then the murderer made it look like a hanging. We could be looking at closer to midnight because she may have been laid down long enough for lividity to set in before the staging. Her body wasn't examined for 12 hours after she was found, so we really don't know when lividity was fixed. Rebecca was found with both her hands and her feet bound using a somewhat sophisticated knot. It wasn't a super complicated one for people who know about knots, but it's not something someone would just come up with. As one article I read put it, there are a lot of easier knots that would have done the job. There were no searches on any of the house computers or other devices for how to tie knots. So it's not as though Rebecca was looking it up and copying something she saw on the internet. Her hands were also bound behind her back, which is really baffling, except that it's been reported there was enough slack that it would have been possible that she tied them in front of her, slipped one hand out, put her hands behind her back, and slipped her hand back into the loops. Again, not the hardest concept, but would Rebecca have known this? I didn't see that she had any background in boating or in Boy Scouts or in the military where she would have learned about these types of knots. Also, the suicide by hanging isn't the rarest form of suicide. It's rare for women. Binding of the hands kind of stands out, but that's actually not as uncommon as you would think. We have an instinct to survive even when we think we want to die, so people will bind their hands to keep themselves from trying to save themselves. The binding of the feet, however, is incredibly rare because it serves no purpose. In fact, it makes things harder. If Rebecca bound her feet, she would then have had to hop across the balcony and climb over the railing without using hands or feet. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The noose was around Rebecca's neck, and a blue shirt was over the noose, wrapped around her neck with the sleeves stuffed into her mouth as a gag. This is one thing Adam moved before EMTs arrived so that he could attempt CPR, and otherwise the only other thing he did that we know is he moved the bindings on her hands to check for a pulse. The gag, if this was for her to commit suicide, was probably so she wouldn't scream out. If it was a murder, probably used for the same exact reason. Now here's an odd thing, and I admit this is a very odd thing for my brain to latch onto with everything else in the story. Rebecca had long hair, and the noose was around her neck with her hair between her neck and the rope. She didn't lift her hair out of the noose. I know if you're going to commit suicide, I get that she wouldn't care if her hair was in the noose or not, but this is an automatic thing for so many people with long hair. I mean, if I put a scarf on or a coat, I automatically reach back and pull my hair out of it. I don't even think about it. It's not a planned thing. It's just an automatic motion. Maybe it wasn't for Rebecca, and I get that this is a very odd thing to stick out in the case of much odder things. But man, it immediately stuck out to me that she didn't pull her hair out. So now we'll walk through the inside scene of the incident. The balcony that Rebecca went off was attached to a room that was primarily used as a guest room. Though it did have a desk and computers in it, so it's more likely it was a guest room come office space. But before even entering the room, there was writing on the door on the side that would have faced the hallway. In black paint was written... She saved him, can you save her, in big block letters. 
Now, block letters are the hardest to match to handwriting, and never mind that these were written on the door and not on a piece of paper on a table. And it was with a paintbrush and not a pen, so there would be less control and it's less of an exact science. You'll read both that it was consistent with Rebecca's writing, and then you will read that it was not consistent with Rebecca's writing. It was written at a height that you'd expect someone of Rebecca's height to reach up and write, but maybe she planned on writing more, so she wanted more room, but then changed her mind at the last minute. In a reenactment by a news outlet, the person they had walking through the events was the same height as Rebecca, and they confirmed it was a reach to paint that high, and she would have had to start lower if she hadn't been told where to start. The meaning of the words is ambiguous at best. First, it's all pronouns. And like your second grade teacher taught you, you can't use a pronoun unless you first establish who you are talking about. So I guess we can assume Rebecca was the she in Who Needed Saving. If Rebecca wrote this, is it she saying that she saved Max by giving him CPR? At this point, Max was still alive. So is she feeling guilt over him getting hurt while she was there? but also pushing some of that guilt away by claiming she saved him? Or is she saying that she saved Jonah after his two contentious marriages and custody battles and that he was finally in a happy relationship? Or thirdly, is this a message from a crazy killer sending a message to Jonah or the police? Or then again, is this from a more practical killer who was trying to confuse the scene even further? And if that's the point, then he or she did a great job. Right. I think this note or whatever it is supposed to be is very interesting, but it just opens more questions rather than giving any clues of what really happened here. I mean, you can find this online, the picture of the door, but the investigators didn't originally release this because they said it's not a suicide note. It doesn't need to be shared to the public. But then again... It's happy for the media to show her deceased body in the backyard, so... Right. The room the balcony was attached to had a heavy replica antique bed, and like the upstairs hallway that some think Max was zooming along on a scooter, this had a deep pile carpet and a thick carpet pad. The end of the tow rope that Rebecca hanged from was tied to the leg of the bed, and the bed had jerked... 7 to 10 inches, depending on the reporting. The news station that did the recreation found that dropping a similarly sized weight in a similar manner would cause a movement of two to three times that distance. However, the police said there were two factors that the news report did not take into account. First, the deep pile of the carpet and the thick carpet pad, and second, that the bed had been in that position for a while, so the legs of the bed had settled into the carpet, so it wasn't sitting on top of the carpet as though the bed had just been placed there. They're confident that these two conditions explain why the bed did not move more. The knots tying the rope to the bed were similar to those that bound Rebecca's hands and feet. A desk chair was knocked over, but that's hardly signs of a struggle in my opinion. Two knives were found in the room, presumably used to cut the rope. The smaller one had no prints on it, but it did have Rebecca's DNA. Her fingerprints were found on the larger knife, but the DNA taken from that knife was not enough for comparison. The rope was also analyzed. It was a synthetic rope, similar to what you would use for boating or water skiing. No fingerprints could be taken from it, but Rebecca's DNA was found on it. There was an additional fragment of what could be DNA taken, but it was so incomplete that it couldn't be confirmed that it was even human, let alone matched to anyone or anything. There were two fingerprints on the bed. One was a child's and one remains unidentified, but neither were near where the rope was tied to the bed. They were up towards the headboard. An unsealed search warrant showed that gloves were found at the scene, a pair of black gloves, and a single black latex glove. I would have to assume if they were worth collecting, they were worth processing, but the results of any processing haven't been published as far as I can tell. The police have stated that the family has the complete report, 
but the police will not be releasing it unless they're legally required to. The balcony was observed to be very dirty. There were two bare footprints in the dirt just outside the door. The heels were together and toes that made a V that would be consistent with Rebecca's bound feet. Closer to the balcony railing was an impression of bare right toe prints and the railing in that spot also had a cleared spot of dirt and is where the rope hung over. So that's considered a likely spot where Rebecca dropped from. There is a boot print on the balcony, which was later matched to a police officer who responded to the scene. According to the investigator's report, these were the only footprints on the balcony. This scene was photographed and looking at the photos, there appears to be some more footprints than just these and the one even overlapping Rebecca's. It's difficult for us to see because the compression of the photos from the web posting makes seeing it clearly nearly impossible. But the people who have analysed this, they had access to the actual photos. There was a drop of blood found in the master bathroom that was never processed. There were similar drops near the guest room, and those were tested, and they matched Rebecca. The autopsy showed that she was menstruating at the time, so they assumed that the small drop in the master bathroom was probably from the same source as the drops they did test, and those were from Rebecca. As to why the police didn't process other parts of the house other than the guest room and the balcony, it's basically because it would be unlikely a murderer would leave evidence in other parts of the house, but not the actual crime scene. The house had multiple people living in it full and part-time, along with summer visitors. There were likely fingerprints and DNA all over that house that really meant nothing. Rebecca's initial autopsy showed that she was, as suspected, in great health. She had ligature marks around her neck, consistent with the hanging. Her hyoid bone, which is a horseshoe-shaped bone in your neck, it's not very far under your chin, it was broken, as is common in strangling and hangings. Dr. Cyril Wecht is a well-known forensic expert. He was later hired by the Zahau family to do a second autopsy. But to keep things easier to follow, we're only discussing the first autopsy here, and we'll discuss what he found later on. So if you know this case well and you're listening, ready to write us an email because we got it wrong, just wait. We'll get to the second autopsy. One thing that many know as suspicious is that on a nine-foot-long drop hanging, it's expected her neck would have broken. So heaven help me, I look this up. There is a complicated formula, but even easier, the British Home Office actually has a chart. Back when Britain and its colonies allowed for hangings, to make it faster and more humane in their eyes, they came up with a chart of how much rope they needed based on the doomed criminal's weight. And this chart's actually still used in some places that allow hangings like Singapore. As would be expected, you need a longer length for lighter weights, as heavier objects free-falling build up speed more quickly than lighter ones. Looking at the chart, and looking at the updates and changes to it, and running the formula on Rebecca weighing about 100 pounds, we're looking at somewhere between 8.5 and and 10 feet. So of course she fell 9 feet, and a few inches, so right in the middle of the range. Police have said it's likely she didn't jump feet first from the balcony. I mean, how could she? Her feet and hands were bound, so she had no way of getting her feet over the railing first. They say that she they say she either leaned forward and went down straight head first, or she kind of rolled off the railing head first but at an angle. And this would alter the mechanics of the hanging and could result in her neck not being broken or fractured. Rebecca did have scratches, scrapes, and bruises on her body that are characterized by the police as consistent with the plants on the balcony, and several of these scratches were on her back. Now here's what's odd to me. Her hands were bound behind her, so you would expect her arms to have similar scrapes and abrasions as her back if they were from the balcony, but they don't. There were two small abrasions, one on her right elbow and one on her left forearm, and there were some on her hands, but I just don't understand how she scraped up her back so much without also scraping up her arms. Rebecca's feet were dirty, which is also consistent with being on the balcony since the balcony was dirty. 
According to the autopsy report, the soles of her feet were dirty. In Anne Rill's short on the case, she characterised them as being caked with mud. These are telling two different stories. Now, we know the balcony was dirty and she wasn't wearing shoes. So dirty feet make sense, but caked on mud makes it sound like she was in the yard and not on the balcony before she died. There were some scrapes on her hands, but her fingernails were intact and now polished in good shape. The tox screen came back clear of alcohol or drugs, and it showed there were no sedatives in her system. The autopsy notes there were no ventral wrist scars, which possibly could have shown a prior suicide attempt. The only scars Rebecca had were related to known surgeries from her younger days. Paint was found on Rebecca's body, and it was the same paint that was used to paint the notes on the door. None of these seemed to be significant amounts. Adam, who, as I said, he was the first to find her, and he was, of course, interviewed and given a polygraph. This came back inconclusive, though the police administering the test, they felt like he was being honest. There is another piece that doesn't quite fit. There was an internet search on a computer in the house for pornography, in particular anime pornography. This matched something that Adam had said he watched on his phone that morning before going out and finding Rebecca. However, he also said he hadn't been in the main house. So did Rebecca, with everything going on, take time to watch some anime porn before she died? Or was Adam in the house at some point? I do tend to lean towards the latter. There was also some computer activity before 3am, after Rebecca was believed to have been dead, but an analysis of her computer showed it was likely an automatic update or a cookie left from a previous usage. Now, a web cookie isn't as delicious as it sounds. What it is, is it's a small piece of data sent from a computer and stored on the user's computer through their browser. One thing that was missing from the internet history, though, how to tie knots, how to tie your own hands behind your back, and anything relating to suicide. In September, after a seven-week investigation, the medical examiner ruled the death a suicide. And this was based mostly on his belief that all of her injuries were consistent with the hanging and the lack of evidence that anyone else was present or involved. This ruling was devastating to the Zahao family who believed then and believe now that Rebecca was murdered. And I can understand that. You don't want to believe that your loved one killed themselves. And I think there are some religious undertones to this. They were a religious family. One thing that really stood out to them was that she was nude. Well, I'm not going to say she was modest. She was known for riding her bike around in just a bikini. She would have known that Jonah's brother would be the one who found her, or possibly one of those neighbors who could see into her yard from their upper stories and balconies. Would she really have wanted to be seen in her final moments naked? Another thing that really stood out to them is that this is nearly an unheard of way to commit suicide. Even with hangings... Most are found with their feet or their legs near the ground. It's called a suspension hanging. And there are two types of suspension hangings. The most common, like I said, with the feet or legs able to touch the ground is called partial. And then a full suspension hanging is what you see in the movies where they kick the, you know, they kick the chair away and hang themselves. This long drop is rare. Binding the hands and maybe even gagging yourself from to keep yourself from calling out, that's not that odd, but the binding of the feet is definitely odd. While I haven't seen this raised by the family, but it did occur to me that Rebecca kept a lengthy journal that she poured all of her thoughts into, and some of that pointed towards unhappiness, but nothing's been released from her writing immediately prior to her death. Leaving a cryptic note painted on the door seems out of character for someone used to pouring her feelings out, occasionally dramatically, but always in a lengthy manner in a journal. Most suicides, there's no note. Research has shown it's as few as 15%, possibly as many as 35% of people leave notes, which means most don't. So on the one hand, I would expect if Rebecca left a note, 
It would be lengthy to get all her feelings out. But on the other hand, she never appeared to share her journal contacts with anyone, even the entries that looked like they were letters to other people. So maybe leaving a note that was confrontational, maybe she wouldn't have done that. Just writing a cryptic note seems odd to me. Me too. Rebecca's family, they're not rich. They left their country of origin as asylum seekers. Then they immigrated again from Germany to the U.S. But they wanted to continue the investigation into Rebecca's death even after the police closed the case. And they were able to retain an attorney, Anne Bremner, who agreed to help them for free. And they were later able to hire Dr. Cyril Wecht, the forensic expert I referred to earlier, to help them with the second autopsy. They were able to network actually with a handful of experts for assistance, private investigators, forensic experts, that sort of thing. Many of them, like Dr. Wecht, worked for free, and others were paid through donations. Dr. Wecht offered to do a second autopsy on Rebecca if the family could pay for the body to be exhumed and transported to him. This expense was covered by Dr. Phil McGraw, the television host, which I know you all watch and you know who I'm talking about. Dr. Phil did a show on both Max and Rebecca and allowed both families to speak on their concerns that their loved ones were murdered and to have their experts discuss the evidence they had found. Four months after her death, Rebecca's family went ahead with a difficult decision to exhume Rebecca's body. Dr. Wecht conducted the second autopsy and found what he believes is blunt force trauma on Rebecca's head, which was inconsistent with anything that could have happened at the scene as she fell. He said it would have been enough to knock her unconscious, which would have made it a lot easier for someone to stage a suicide. Some bruising on her head was found in that first autopsy. It just feels like Dr. Wecht and the original medical examiner have vastly different opinions on how big of a deal this was. Another thing he noted was that there was bruising to the front of her neck that was lower than where the rope would have been that he found inconsistent with the hanging. Yet there was a distinct lack of damage to the rear of her neck and her spine that he would have expected to see in a hanging. And lastly, something noted on the first autopsy that Dr. Wecht points out is the tape residue on Rebecca's left leg. If she'd initially thought to bind herself with duct tape, started but then changed her mind and pulled it off. But where's the tape? It was never recovered from the scene. But perhaps if this was a murder, then it makes sense for the murderer to take the tape with him or her. Now, I've read that the tape may have been medical tape residue from the injury Rebecca had earlier, but I haven't seen anything to confirm such an injury. Dr. Wecht said that his ruling was that the manner of death was undetermined. He leaned towards homicide, but then he said there isn't enough currently for the ruling and he urged the police to reopen the investigation. The Zahau family feels that the police made a rush to judgment in determining Rebecca's death as a suicide, but the sheriff maintains that he held out as long as he could. He initially thought it was a homicide, but as the evidence was collected and it was tested, he could no longer support the homicide theory. And... I have to just reflect as we're discussing the battle of the experts, the ones who are supporting that Max's death wasn't an accident, the ones that are supporting that Rebecca's death wasn't a suicide, and how hard it must have been and must be to be Jonah Shackney through all this. It wasn't easy on anyone, and I don't mean to sound like I'm tearing people's pain here because this is an incredibly sad story overall. But while keeping vigil at his dying son's bedside, he found out that his girlfriend died. Then his son died. This is a high-profile case, so he's being hounded by the media. He ended up hiring a PR firm, not for his own public relations, but just to handle all the phone calls and the comments and everything that was coming his way so that he could focus on grieving. His ex-wife believes their son was murdered by his girlfriend. His girlfriend's family believes she was murdered by his ex-wife, her sister, and his brother. I mean, how much was on him at this time? I can't even imagine. Yeah, it is hard enough to lose your son and then your girlfriend, but to have your whole family at odds with one another, 
I don't know how he got through it. I have no idea. Eventually, Rebecca's house family filed a wrongful death suit against Adam Shacknai, Dina Shacknai, and her twin sister, Nina Romano. Jonah was not named in the suit, and it doesn't appear the family ever believed he was involved in her death. In the suit, it is alleged that the three conspired together and killed Rebecca, first by rendering her unconscious with a blow to the head and then hanging her. The motive behind this would be vengeance for what happened to Max. Before we get any further, the idea in my head that Dina would take time away from being with her son, who she was just told was probably not going to recover, to go confront Rebecca or to murder her... That just sounds ridiculous to me. I'm sorry. I don't get dragging her into this. I feel terrible that she was dragged into this. But in the end, it didn't matter because very recently, as in April of 2017, so just last month, Dina and Nina were both dropped from the lawsuit. A hospital security camera caught Dina on a recording at the hospital when Rebecca died. Nina was dropped from the suit the Zahau's attorney said there was some evidence that proved that she also couldn't have been there at that time, though he they weren't specific on what that was. And the Zahau's attorney went so far as to apologize to them at a press conference. Nina's insurance company chose to pay the Zahau family some money to protect themselves and Nina from further litigation down the road. But I just it needs to be said Nina was against this payment being made. And the truth is, we don't have control over what our insurance companies choose to do in situations like this. The suit against Adam, however, still stands, though the theory now is that he murdered Rebecca alone. It's scheduled to go to trial in February 2018, unless it's settled before then, and we will be sure to update you as we hear more of what's going on with that. So let's talk about what happened to Rebecca. We've laid out the information as best we can to sum it up the three theories are first that rebecca committed suicide second that rebecca was attacked and murdered by hanging off the balcony and lastly that she was murdered and the hanging was actually staged from the ground that there was no long drop and that explains why her neck wasn't broken and that sort of thing I think it's quite possible that Rebecca was angry and hurt at the time of her death. I truly believe that she did love Max and Jonah, and I imagine this would have had some effect on her as far as guilt and confusion and anger. I think that Jonah could have told her about Max and then possibly blamed her for it, and then he asked her to maybe leave before he got back. I think Rebecca could have been angry because she believes that she was responsible for saving Max, even though... He was obviously going to die after the accident. So maybe the message means that she saved Max to a certain point, but could Jonah save her? Like you said, she was under a lot of stress. We don't know exactly what Jonah said in that message. We don't know how Rebecca interpreted what he said in that message. A friend had mentioned that she seemed depressed and had lost weight recently that journal on her phone points to someone who was fairly unhappy. She made it her goal to be Max's caregiver and the best girlfriend she could be. And this was a really huge failure on that. Even though I don't personally blame her for what happened to Max because six-year-olds, they're not two-year-olds. They don't need immediate and constant supervision. It was an accident, but that doesn't mean we don't blame ourselves when freak accidents happen. So I can see her committing suicide. The being nude does stand out to me, unless she was also looking to punish herself for what had happened. If she blamed herself for what happened, and she decided not only was she going to commit suicide, she was also going to humiliate herself in the process, I don't see the rush to assuming it's murder. I did Google nude suicides and according to what I read, they're usually committed by people who are angry and wanting to get back at someone. So if her and Jonah did have a fight with him blaming her, it could have been that she wanted to get back at him. That's an interesting psychology of the nude suicide being from anger. That's really interesting. There are the things that kind of stick out for it not being a suicide. The blows to her head. 
the way the balcony is and the way down there wouldn't there weren't parts of the balcony jutting out or parts of the house jutting out that you would have expected her to have hit her head on the knots how did rebecca know these knots why did she use these odd knots they're they've been described as hitch knots which hitch knot is a very vague description because there are I I couldn't even tell you how many hitch knots there are, but they are knots that are often used in boating. Would Rebecca really have known those? I I don't know about the footprints on the balcony. That picture, like you said, the one we can see is fairly blurry. People who've seen the picture, though, think there are more. But the investigators who were at the scene didn't think there were more footprints. But for me, really, it's the blows to the head and the knots she used that put a question mark in this case for me. You mentioned them being boat knots and we know Jonah had, I mean, let's not joke around, like he was very well off. Is it possible that he had a boat and maybe taught Rebecca how to do the knots for the boat? It is possible. Her family insists she wouldn't have known these knots, but someone learned them somewhere, so maybe. The last theory was that Rebecca was never on the balcony at all, and this is that instead she was killed in the yard and then the hanging was completely staged. Her dirty feet, the abrasions on her body, was she chased through the yard and possibly tackled? Her neck wasn't broken, so did she not ever go through that long drop? The bed didn't move as far as they thought it would move. I don't think this is the answer, but there I can see why some people lean towards this. To me, it would make more sense if it was staged, if it didn't include the bondage or a note written in the third person. This is a really tough case. There's a lot of grief here. I think a lot of people are making their decisions and their statements to the media out of grief and maybe not out of a really solid look at what's happening. I do think Max's death was an accident. I think Rebecca's very well could have been a suicide. It wouldn't hurt anything for the case to be reopened and reexamined. And I feel the same way. I do... I've been back and forth with Rebecca right up until we started recording, but I think I am leaning slightly towards it being a suicide. But I honestly don't see any foul play in Max's accident, and I don't think Rebecca had a single thing to do with Max's fall. I think it's more probable that he fell alone while either playing or going down the stairs on the scooter, because we know kids fall and have accidents all the time. I did read that accidental death is the number one cause of childhood fatality. It's much more common than homicide without a real motive. In a lot of ways, I feel like the truth of Max's death have been glossed over. It's been manipulated into something that it never was for some other purpose. And to me, that makes me sad for his memory. Thank you guys for tuning in. We want to go ahead and do our shout outs real quick. First, we'll do their five-star reviews. I want to thank Brendan Kenny. He has, beyond just this review, he has been super supportive of the show. I think it was our second or third episode where he gave us a shout out on his Periscope and brought in new listeners. So huge thank you to Brendan for not just his review, but for all of his support. Also to SSK Rough Riders 89 H. Ricard, Blue Jeep, and ALC Forever 24. And then to our Patreon supporters, I want to give a shout out and a huge thank you to Rana Tulaney from True Crime Fan Club. I owe her a shout out anyway. She's been super supportive. New friend of ours jumped right in to being a huge supporter. Nicole G, I am being forced to give a shout out to a dog. So shout out to Rudy the Wonder Dog. I would say he was owned by Chuck from History Dweebs, but I think it's the other way around. And so thank you to Rudy and to Chuck. Chuck is actually training Rudy to assassin me at CrimeCon. Just putting it out there. So if I go missing, you all know what happened to me. Blame Rudy the Wonder Dog. Also, a thank you to Rachel O. We really appreciate it. And Melissa A. You guys are so great the support we can't even express how much it means to us and also we need to give a shout out to another podcaster who has been just great 
Tyler from Minds of Madness podcast. He sent us some merch, which was really nice. I've been enjoying drinking coffee out of the coffee mug. Great new podcast. Definitely check it out if you like true crime. He has the perfect voice for narrating these podcasts. So that's Minds of Madness podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast. We have a page, we have a group, and Insight is two words. On Twitter, it's at Insightful Pod, and you'll generally talk to me. And if you want to talk to Allie directly, she's on Instagram at Insight Pod. Also, we have a website, insightpod.com, where we have articles, we have supplemental materials to our episodes, we have our show notes, we have all those things that you need. If you want to donate on Patreon, we are at patreon.com slash insightpod. We have a new bonus episode going up very soon. So if you want to get in on that, that's on Patreon. And don't forget, we have two meetups coming up. One in Sydney on the 27th at 6 p.m. at the Bear Bar at Haymarket. And our Kansas City meetup, which will be May 28th from 2 to 5 at Black Dog Coffee in Lenexa. So whether we see you in Sydney, we see you in Kansas City, we see you at CrimeCon, or we just see you online, we look forward to talking to you guys soon. And we will be back next week with a new episode.